evangelical tribes. When we say that Fiona and I are doing it together, what we mean is actually we're going to alternate rather than have one of us taking each side of the room at, at the same time as we go along. We're going to start in a moment by looking at the scriptures. So if you want to be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 while I speak, please do so. Uh, we're then going to have a little bit of a look at what are the evangelical tribes. Uh, we're then going to turn to a success story, and Fiona's going to take us through a little bit of one significant way over the last few years in which we've seen evangelical tribes able to work together. Uh, and then uh, I've been asked to do a section at the end on top tips, which should really be subtitled Mistakes That I've Made and How Not to Repeat Them, uh, but some bullet points on how to help us for the future. Having said all of that, though, we imagine the most valuable time will probably then be when we split to twos and threes and ponder it, and then as we have a time for questions and answers at the end. So do please be storing questions up as we go along, and if there are things you want to ask or things you want to pursue a little bit further, we really hope there'll be time for that before we finish for coffee. But let's start by reading from uh, the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 1. Uh, I'm reading verses 1 to 17 from the extremely sound version. Uh, if you're in the Greek, you'll just have to translate as you go along. I'll leave that to you. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptised in my name. I did baptise also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptised anyone else. <laughs> yeah, I have those moments too. Sorry, that was me. <laughs> Back to verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. So as Mark says, uh, we are sort of doing a double act this morning, and so here are some brief thoughts from that passage to frame our conversation in 1 Corinthians 1. A little bit about the context of that church to which this letter was written. It was a major port, a major city on the trade route between Europe and Asia Minor, a multi-ethnic city, and a city where, sadly, uh, even these days, lots of ports also centre of sexual promiscuity. 
Centre of Paganism, Sexual Immorality Inside and Outside the Church, Lawsuits, Disparity Between the Rich and the Poor, Competition and Rivalry Between Various Factions. Does this sound familiar? And on to the passage itself. If I were my Welsh much-loved and sadly now for our sake, but for his sake wonderful, promoted to glory vicar of Christchurch Cotfosters when I was a teenager growing up, he would say, my text for today, my beloved, is... But I'm not him, so I won't do it in a Welsh accent. But the text, the verse we're really going to focus on is verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers... I exhort you, brothers and sisters, I entreat you, I beseech you, I call upon you. It's a word full of emotion. It's not a sort of, well, if, if you don't mind. I exhort you, I beg you, I appeal to you. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's this a significant something that's about to come. Okay, I appeal to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's just been reminding them in the earlier verses of what that means to, for something to be in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, call to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a local thing. Grace given in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, they've been enriched in every way in all speech and knowledge in Jesus Christ. Verse 7, they're waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, he will sustain them to the end, guiltless in the day he returns, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has called them, verse 9, into the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is faithful. All of that is in the background of, and now I urge you in the name of this Lord Jesus Christ. Now in that name, I appeal to you, I exhort you, I entreat you, I call upon you. Agree. All of you agree. Let there be no divisions among you. Be united in the same mind and the same judgment, the same mind and the same thought. Agree with one another in what you say. Literally, in the original language, may you all say the same thing. May there be no schisms, no divisions. And then this wonderful word, May you be perfectly knit together, perfectly woven together in the same mind and the same judgment. This is what Paul urges in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you may all say the same thing, there be, may be no divisions among you, and you may be perfectly knit together in the same mind and the same judgment. Or as Calvin puts his commentary on this verse, and he switches the order for emphasis. May you be joined in mind, may you be joined in agreement, and may you declare that agreement in words. May you be joined in mind, joined in agreement, and declare that agreement in words. We are so used, I think, to disagreements and divisions that we miss this rebuke. We've become accustomed to different parties in the church. And Paul says, no schisms within the body of believers. And the word schism is meant to be like a slap in the face as you read it. No divisions to bring people up short. What on earth had been going on? Verses 11 and 12, factions growing around those whom the believers thought were the best speakers. 
and rivalries and discord growing as a result, common in Corinth and other cities of the time to rank and judge speakers, not just within the church, but in society. Go and pick your favorite teacher and listen to him. Fights would sometimes break out amongst the rival followers of the rival speakers. I read in one commentary about, in fact, one time when one group of young, hot-headed followers of one particular speaking faction, not in the church, are we relieved to hear, set upon and killed the follower of another one. A bit like, I don't know, sports fans. It can go all the way from a bit of banter to full-blown fights in the streets outside. And Paul's saying, no, this is dreadful. This grievous human contentiousness is splitting up the church, the body of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not content to say that they follow the Lord who was crucified for them, though some are saying that. But others are adding to it. So I'm not just a follower of Christ. I'm not just a Christian. I'm a Pauline Christian. I'm an Apollon Christian. I'm a Petrine Christian. And in so doing, they're suggesting that Christ is divided. I spend quite a lot of time reading ancient, uh, the early church fathers for my PhD, so there's a lot of Chrysostom in this, I'm afraid. Actually, I'm not afraid. There just is a lot of Chrysostom. He, he spares no blushes about this in his commentary on this passage. He says, you've cut Christ up. He's not saying that they'd become many parts and each part was entire in itself, but rather in cutting up the body, the body itself is destroyed in some ways. <coughs> For something that is entire in itself doesn't become lots of little versions of itself by being divided. The original one is lost. I don't know if you've ever seen that clip um, on YouTube or, or, or like me, old enough to remember the film of uh, Walt Disney's Fantasia, which was reissued in the year 2000. Um, but the original version, I was shown by my mother in the 80s, and uh, there, is, there is Mickey Mouse as the sorcerer's apprentice. And uh, Mickey, feeling a little bit lazy, having been told to, to clean the, the, the house by his master, the sorcerer, thinks, I know how I can make this easier. I can just go, ding, and the broom with which I'm having to clean this mucky house will become lots of brooms, and I can just sit back and it will clean itself. And so each time that happens, the broom divides itself and goes marching with the buckets, and off it goes. And then it, another one, and off they go marching with the buckets. It's not like that. They go on dividing and dividing. It's not like that. Bad, though, that turned out to be for Mickey Mouse, let I lest you be tempted to try this. This did not go well for Mickey. It's more like, it's not like that. It's not divide and then you've got two brooms. Divide more, you've got four brooms. It's more like amputation. The original body is irrevocably changed by the division. Now, yes, in the case of disease, that might be the last resort, the awful only possibility in order to save the body and save the person. But that's something you un only undertake if all other options have failed. It's not to be undertaken lightly, it's a last resort. What Paul is saying is that among those who have been given grace in the Lord Jesus, among those who are full of spiritual gifts, 
among those who are eagerly awaiting the revelation of Christ and whom he is keeping blameless and guiltless in his until his return, there should not, cannot be divisions, because to do so harms the whole. Mark and I will spend the rest of our time in this session working through with each other and with you what it might look like in our day. Where there are divisions amongst evangelicals about all sorts of theological points, where evangelical brothers and sisters sometimes inadvertently, sometimes deliberately ferment dissension and quarrels in the way we talk about one another and the way sometimes we talk to one another in person, in print, online where sometimes we might use language to describe and dismiss one another. What would Paul say to that? I suspect he might say what he said to those Corinthian believers. Say the same thing. Be of one voice. Don't have divisions among you. Be agreed in mind and will. Be knit together. As in fact, we have been knit together by the Lord Jesus. Don't just say the same things, but then withhold affection in your heart and, say un and think uncharitable things about each other. As Calvin says, not just agreement about doctrine, but being in harmony with one, with one another in affections and of one mind. It's hard. It's really hard. But the apostle commands it, and the Lord prays for it. So to that end, I'm going to hand over to Mark as we begin our conversation that you get to listen in on and join in with about how we can fight to retain that unity and harmony of affection and of speaking the same thing, being in agreement about greater things so as to extinguish division about lesser things. Great, thanks, Fiona. Probably helpful to say, first of all, though, that labels can be useful. So if I say to you that my bishop goes to Greenbelt, I've actually told you something quite uh, uh, helpful about my bishop. And you are probably making assumptions about him, about his theology, about his uh, methods of going about ministry, much of which would be accurate simply from that Greenbelt label. But of course, labels are also dangerous. They lead us to make assumptions about theology. They lead us to make assumptions about priorities. And as my youngest son, Joshua, who's now 12, never, uh, never ceases to remind me, uh, never assume, for when you do, when you assume, you make an ass out of you and of me. Let's start with some labels. Or oh, here are 20 possible tribes. The original list had 43, but time is short. New Wine, Prop Trust, Greenbelt, Evangelical Alliance, Renew, Word Alive, Commission, Soul Survivor, Amy, Fulcrum, Ewan, Awesome, CPAS, Your Own Dialson Evangelical Fellowship, Your Local Gospel Partnership, UCCF, Churches under the Episcopal provision of the Bishop of Maidstone, Willow Creek, Anglican Mainstream, Church Society. Unless I could have given you quite a few more. Now, I hope at least in one of those labels there's one that you identify with. If there isn't, I really apologise and let me know afterwards and I'll amend this talk for the next time I give it. But there is, of course, a lot of overlap 
My guess is for most of us, we probably readily, heartily identify with maybe three or four of those labels. And maybe there are some that perhaps we aren't even quite clear exactly what they are. How is it, therefore, that we can work out what's been going on? Where do all these tribes come from? Will you bear with me if we have a very short history lesson? I hope you will, because um, otherwise you're going to have to find something else to do for five minutes. Because where we've got to today with our evangelical tribes is a function of what's been going on over the last uh, five decades. And I think what's happened is that, give or take, in each of the last five decades, there has been some sort of split within the evangelical constituency over a particular question, and it's forced evangelicals to choose. Now, in case you can't copy the questions down quick enough, I did post them on the Jake Facebook page about 20 minutes ago, uh, so you've got full permission to play on Facebook for the next uh, 10 minutes. Here, though, are those five questions. Let's start by going back to the late 1960s into the 1970s. Coming out of the uh, disagreement between John Stott and Martin Lloyd-Jones at NIAC at Kiel in 66, question one... Are you a contender or a separatist? In other words, as an evangelical, will you stay in the denomination and contend for it, or will you come out of it? And though that is five decades old, we still see it even today. Will you stick in the Church of England, or will you jump ship for a lifeboat such as AMIE? That's the first question. In the 1980s, there was, though, a second issue. This was in response to the charismatic movement. So secondly, are you a cessationist or a continuationist with regard to spiritual gifts? Now, what that second question meant was that instead of just having two tribes with evangelicalism, all of a sudden, each of those two in turn divided in two. You had four tribes quite quickly. I'm not making any comment about the, uh, about the different tribes, other than to say that all four of them were valid expressions of what has traditionally been considered to be evangelicalism, four potential tribes. In the 1990s, though, things started to get really complicated with issues about the uh, role of women and ministry in the church. So the third question is, are you a complementarian or an egalitarian? And mathematically, you've probably worked out that if beforehand you had four groups, you suddenly multiply that out to eight possible tribes. Now, just to stop there for a moment, uh, by the end of the 1990s, that was the point at which I first went to go and see a DDO. And as I reflected on my evangelicalism, and as I was forced a little bit by the DDO to consider my evangelicalism in the light of wider evangelicalism, I was trying to work out my answers to those three questions, and therefore where out of the eight possibilities I stood. Who were my natural allies, and who were the people that I agreed with over core doctrines, but perhaps disagreed with over some of these secondary issues? But at that stage, I was only doing so out of two to the power of three possibilities. In the first decade of this century, that is in, I think, what we now call the noughties, another question arose. Because in that decade, out of a response to concerns about division, a number of interdenominational partnerships grew up. Things like the local gospel partnerships. 
The problem was that it invited people to make a decision as to what their primary loyalty was going to be, because to put it bluntly, most people didn't have time to be involved in everything, and therefore people had to pick and choose which conferences would they go to, which local groups would they be committed to, where would they put their energies. And so the fourth question that came up in that decade, are you a denominationalist? or an interdenominationalist. So, for example, on the ground in the diocese, did you put your time and your energies into your local gospel partnership or into your diocesan evangelical fellowship? That's the decade in which I got ordained, and I can remember quite a few of my contemporaries, along with me, battling over which was to be the most important. Were we going to focus on fighting for the denomination, or were we going to focus on the opportunities for mission by going outside of the denomination as well? And the very first time I came to the Jake Conference in this room, I can remember a barnstorming argument with John Richardson of, of blessed memory uh, as we tried to work out which of those two would take the greatest share of our time and our energies. Of course, you can also imagine that by adding another division, what was your eight different possibilities, I think mathematically, had just become 16. Finally, 2010s, our own decade, we have the whole question of the response to the sexuality debates. If we assume, for the purposes of this meeting, that the evangelical response to the sexuality debates is that of the orthodox position as agreed within the Church of England Evangelical Council uh, reshaping of their uh, beliefs... There are, though, still two different approaches to make. For now, I'm not making any comment on either of them. Are you articulate in your position or ambiguous about your position? There are some networks that have very deliberately stayed ambiguous because they want to, well, they make the argument, they want to move beyond the heat of this particular sexuality debate to focus on the primary issues. In this country, I'd suggest to you that HDB have been a prime example of that. If you're looking internationally, I think someone like Timothy Keller has at times been very close to that in New York by deliberately staying ambiguous on this so as to focus on other things. Or are you articulate? If I were to go through the uh, sermon recordings for your church over the last 12 months, would I be able to hear from that quite clearly where you stand or where your church stands on the sexuality debates of our day? Not making any comment for now on what is right or wrong in that, but you can imagine that eight positions has become 16 positions, has become 32 positions in total. Now, of those, of those 32, I'm not saying for a moment that they are all of equal size within the evangelical constituency at the moment, but I do just have three points on this before I hand back uh, to Fiona in a moment. Here's the first one, and if anything, this is the key one. It is possible to agree on so much and yet still be in a different tribe. So take, for example... Church Society and the Anglican Mission in England, Church Society and Amy, differing over the first of those five questions, 
but by and large in complete agreement over the next four. So let's keep the division, the distinction, in proportion, shall we? Or take, for example, HTB and new wine. Just as I alluded to at the moment, I think HTB carefully staying ambiguous on sexuality, new wine more and more moving to be articulate on it. I think we would say that on the first four questions, those two tribes would be in a very similar position. Just because they disagree on the fifth, well, that's just one of the issues. There's an awful lot that we have in common. So the first point I want to make, and we'll return to this, we can agree on so much and yet still be in a different tribe. Here's my second point. Some tribes are very, very small indeed. I did actually work out a, a table. I nearly printed it out for you, but it's too early in the morning. Uh, the, a, a grid with all 32 options uh, on it, uh, and some of the bigger tribes, you can quite clearly see where they fit on that grid. There are some squares that are very, very empty, until I started to think of some individuals I know and love, and who, because this session is being recorded, I'm not going to name. But it suddenly started to twig for me that for some of them, how incredibly isolating and how vulnerable to be one of the very few people in that particular tribe. If you are the only person you know with your particular set of answers to those five questions, you're going to feel vulnerable wherever you go. Maybe, in fact, that's you here today. In which case, is it not good to be reminded that these are secondary issues and not primary ones? There are some tribes that are huge and sometimes can feel intimidatingly huge. It doesn't necessarily mean that we should feel ashamed for being in a far smaller tribe if that's where in conscience we are. And then the third thing I want to say for now, and I will hand over to Fiona. Here's the problem with tribes. When we start to work between tribes, when we start to cross over boundaries, when we start to unite evangelical tribes, the great fear is of being seen to compromise on what can appear to be the most pressing questions of our time. If the divisions have taken place because of those five questions over the last five decades, those are the ones that evangelicals have, frankly, been at each other tooth and nail over for the bulk of that decade. It now takes tremendous courage to say, despite those battles and despite our disagreements, I will look to work with you, to partner with you. I will be willing to compromise on our disagreement on that secondary issue so that we might unite the evangelical tribes. And I think before we go out of this room today, and certainly before we can start to think seriously about how to unite the evangelical tribes, we need to ask ourselves deep down and quite seriously, are we willing to be seen as those who are willing to compromise? Or are we frankly too fearful of what other people will say? As I look back over what is about 12, 13 years since I was ordained, 
I think in retrospect, I spent too much time being fearful of what other evangelicals will say if I compromise on some of these issues. You can ask me more about that if you want to in the questions later on. I think the more that I decide to worry less about what other people think, the more effective I will be as a servant of Christ in bringing about unity within these tribes. Okay? Now, before this becomes a council of complete despair, I'm going to hand over to Fiona again, who's going to talk us through a good news story on one of those questions. All yours. So one of the biggest debates before the current ones was, of course, the question about um, women and the episcopacy, which for some people followed naturally from the, the ordination of women to the presbyterate, and for others was like, no, that, that's now further than I can go in conscience. Um, and that was just at the time that I was being ordained, interestingly. I think I'd been ordained about six months when the first vote that was no to uh, women being consecrated to the episcopacy uh, when that no vote came through. And immediately, social media just exploded. And, and Facebook, which I'd only just ventured onto and had now ventured off again, uh, my, my timeline was, Fiona, what do you think? How do you feel? Are you all right? Well, one, I was never going to be a bishop in the first place, so I, I'm absolutely fine. And two, um, of course, if, if this is something that is meant to happen, then it, if it, we have to wait another five years, fine. And, and if it isn't meant to happen, then I'm glad it's failed, frankly. But So I'm just going to talk a little bit about my experience of, of what it was like um, around that time. We were all called um, by... The, all female clergy were called by our bishop to a meeting because he and his suffragans wanted to show their support and for, for all female clergy. Men were invited too, and several came. So, so it wasn't just women clergy. Um, but... What struck me, and, and I actually stood up and spoke about this, was, was because I was, I was in the place where I was speaking to both sides at that point. So I was explaining to people who thought that this was dreadful and everybody who'd voted against it was a horrible misogynist. No, actually, they're not. They're wonderful, lovely brothers and sisters in the Lord who have a deeply held position of faith and conscience, which shouldn't be violated. And to the other pe people who were in that stage, uh, who, who were complementarian in view, I was saying, um, please understand that for some people this is now a deeply personal and very upsetting experience and we need to show compassion. So there was sort of mixed talking going on, but to try and bring people together. And the thing that struck me was, actually that gave us an enormous opportunity to outdo each other, but to outdo each other in love and grace to outdo each other in love and grace and kindness and speaking well of each other to the other, as it were. And so I actually challenged uh, and, and stood up in, in that gathering of, of clergy with the bishops and, and all the rest of it there and said, actually, we now need to go and, and make our watchword now what is the most we can do in conscience, the most we can do, the furthest we can go, not the least we can get away with. <coughs> And so that became our watchword in, in, our, in our little group of, of people talking about this thing. What's the most we can do? What's the furthest we can go? How can we outdo each other in love and grace and kindness and speaking well of each other and defending each other and putting the position that we ourselves don't hold as well and as articulately as if the person who was standing next would say, well, you've put that better than I would have done myself. Thank you. 
And so we began to do that, so that when, in a, a few years' time, the, um, the issue with Philip North and the Diocese of Sheffield came about, um, because by then the, five, the, the, the women could be consecrated as bishops and the five guiding principles had come into place, and then Philip North was nominated as Bishop of Sheffield, and you know what happened afterwards with all the controversy, and he withdrew after some soul-searching. So... Um, the chair of our diocese and evangelical fellowship and I decided that one way we could show unity, uh, I am obviously in favour, as in because I'm here doing what I do, uh, in favour of women being able to exercise public ministry in the Church of England, and my colleague is not. But we decided one thing we could concretely do was to write a joint letter to the Church Times saying that we thought the way Philip North had not become Bishop of Sheffield was awful. And these were the reasons why and that it showed very little good faith on the guiding principles and all those sorts of things. Now, our letter wasn't published, but we wrote the letter publicly together, and we then disseminated it through other channels because it didn't get published. And what we'd learned, that, that, had been, that was a few years on, obviously, because what that person who's chair of our DEF had said to me at the end of that meeting about in 2012 or whenever it was about women in the episcopacy, he'd said, this is over to your generation now, as in the younger ones in, in ministry, not in age, but the younger ones in ministry terms who haven't been the ones fighting the battle, if you like, over women in the presbyterate, and who have therefore trained together across that difference, have learnt to love one another, respect one another, honour one another in the Lord, and have each other's backs in public, as it were, and in private, uh, and, and therefore can communicate together and can, can put those secondary issues in their place and that it was over to people like us to, to lead things forward and in a healing sort of way, outdoing each other in love. The most we can do, not the least we can get away with, as Mark's just alluded to, being prepared to take the risk of being misunderstood. We'll all be able to, uh, we can ask us more in the questions about times when it, we have risked the misunderstanding of those who naturally think we're like them by saying something that makes them go, I thought you were one of us, and being prepared to take that risk. Um, thinking, for example, about the fact that um, when we're discussing any issues, we are not fighting people, we're fighting principalities and powers to win people. We're not fighting people. Um, discriminating the levels of the issues and praying for people, whoever they are, whether they're our brothers and sisters, our neighbours, or perceived as our enemies, they're nonetheless people we're called to pray for. So keeping those sorts of things in perspective and praying for their restoration or salvation if we think they really have gone wrong. So that was one good news story. And now I'm going to hand back to Mark for top tips. Which, as I said earlier, should be subtitled Mistakes I've Made and How Not to Repeat Them. Um, I've got 12 suggestions for us. Um, I haven't put these on uh, Facebook. I could perhaps do so later. So you may have to listen a bit more carefully as we go through. Here's my first one. And if you only take one on board, perhaps just stick with this one. Uh, pray for unity every day. Um, I've asked about uh, 15 or 20 evangelical church leaders uh, over the last few months how often they pray for uh, uniting the evangelical tribes and without exception they've all looked slightly embarrassed as they've pondered their response uh, so too have I 
We do quite rightly pray for the unity of the whole church. Should we not specifically be praying for unity amongst the evangelicals? And it strikes me that if that was important enough for our Lord on the night before he died to pray for with such earnestness, read John 17, should we not be praying for it uh, daily as well? And I wonder whether the generation coming through might be the generation that prays and therefore sees these tribes being united more effectively. Uh, tips 2 to 12 are all uh, secondary to that, really. Uh, secondly, though, I'd suggest we need to get crystal clear on primary and secondary issues. This might be a reflection slightly more on what I like to think of as my half-generation. I don't like to think I'm that much older than some of you, but maybe I am. Um, I think, as I reflect on my time at college and since, at times we've been very good in taking a secondary issue and making it a primary issue uh, down this particular issue. It goes down this particular route. It goes something like this. I know that we can disagree on this, but if you read in the Bible, you'll see quite clearly that I'm right. And therefore, it becomes an issue of whether or not we submit in obedience to the word of God. And if you look elsewhere in the scriptures, you'll see that submitting in obedience to the word of God is a primary issue. And so do you see what I've just done there? <laughs> Nobody's quite as crude as they make that argument. Uh, but I have heard it made a number of times about issues that are clearly secondary. Um, are we crystal clear on what constitutes a primary issue and what constitutes a secondary issue? Thirdly, let's remember that disunity is a <coughs> spiritual issue. It's not just a structural problem, although it may be that as well. It is primarily a spiritual issue. I think that comes not just from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that we looked at earlier, but take a look also in John 17 and in Philippians 2. Are we willing to look in our hearts to see how worldly our thinking is? We need to address that first if we're to see greater unity. Fourthly, more positively, let's look to spend more time with those from other tribes. By which I mean, who do you go for coffee with? Whose talks do you listen to? Whose books or blogs do you read? Now, understandably, we do want to build relationships within our own tribe. We want to support them, and we need their support. But if we do that exclusively, what we find is we are creating artificial barriers between us. Um, so, on each of those five different uh, questions or divisions I mentioned earlier, do we know evangelicals who think differently from us on those questions? And if we don't, well maybe we need to expand our networks quite significantly. College can be a fantastic time for this. It's very tempting simply to spend the time with those who think exactly like us, but let's try to form wider networks with people who think differently on these things. Similarly, as you move on into uh, title posts or other forms of ministry uh, outside, don't just beeline in on those who think exactly the same as you, if you can find them, be willing to spend time having coffee, 
talking, listening to those who think differently. You may well not want to spend the time and the energy and the money going to their conferences, but most conferences put talks online now. Why not take time listening to them if you have a spare hour from time to time? And can I suggest that perhaps the best place to start there is to, to be spending time with those with whom you disagree on only one or two of the questions. Do a little bit of analysis of where you are on that and where other evangelicals you know are. Don't necessarily zero in on that evangelical friend from college who thinks differently from you on all five of those questions. You'll probably find that would be quite a rough relationship to build initially. But can you find folk with whom you disagree on only one or two? Start there and see how it goes. Fourthly, spend more time with those from other tribes. Fifthly, beware friendly fire, part one. In other words, don't be surprised if you take flack for this. If you're one of those evangelicals for whom uh, the adjective you desire most for your life and your ministry is soundness, then you're going to find this really hard. Because one of the best ways to leave people querying whether or not you are sound is to spend time with other evangelicals. Be willing to take friendly fire and don't be surprised when it happens. Sixthly, linked to this, resolve to worry less what it might look like. I think quite a few of us are quite careful about what we present to the outside world, both in terms of how people think about us, but also in terms of how we portray ourselves, in particular uh, on uh, social media. Uh, maybe I'm just talking to myself, but I think we'd all be helped if we resolved to worry less about what it might look like. Seventhly, please support leaders who are working for unity, and don't just support the leaders from inside your own tribe. Specifically, find leaders from outside your tribe and work out how you might support them. John Dunnett was here yesterday. He, like me, is based in the Chelmsford Diocese. We are from slightly different tribes. But we've been able to work together over the last eight, nine, ten months in terms of trying to form some sort of response over the sexuality debates within the Chelmsford Diocese. I think the only way that we've got much traction on that has been because other evangelicals have been willing to support the leadership of the tribes as they've stepped out and said, we're going to try and work together on this when it would have been so much easier for others to throw a few bricks and say, we're not working with them over my dead body. So be willing to support leaders who are working for unity. Eighth, and here's a very specific one, join your diocesan evangelical fellowship today. In fact, if you're bored, feel free now to Google your diocesan evangelical fellowship some will let you join online, others will give you an email address. You have permission to skip the next four top tips while you send them an email saying that you're sitting in the Jake Conference right now and you would love to join your diocesan evangelical fellowship. There are a few dioceses that don't have operating evangelical fellowships, or one or two call them evangelical unions, 
Uh, if that is the case for the diocese that you're connected with, then do see me afterwards, because quite a few of those dioceses are trying to establish them, and they'd love to hear from you, especially if you have any energy. But join your DEF today and get the dates of their next meeting in your diary. <coughs> Ninthly, beware friendly fire, part two. Please don't be responsible for it. It's very easy for us carelessly to start throwing bricks at those who are working to develop unity. We wouldn't put it quite like that. We would probably express it in terms of developing clarity or working on parameters. But the effect can be, especially if we're careless in the way that we speak or type, the effect can be incredibly destructive. Just so I want you not to be surprised if you're on the receiving end of friendly fire, can I plead with you, please don't be responsible for friendly fire either. Tenthly, and it's linked to that previous one, it's a question. Can you distinguish between winning people and winning arguments? It's very tempting on some of these issues quickly to slip into trying to win the argument more than the person. There will be a place for both, but the danger is that you can rarely do both in the same conversation. And that if you win the argument first, it's then much harder to win the person. Win the person first, winning the argument might follow later. But I wonder how good we are, and I say this conscious, I say it to myself as much as to you. How good are we at distinguishing between winning the person and winning the argument? Eleventh. Um, this was actually going to be an entire talk, so I'm going to try and summarize it in two minutes. I think as evangelicals, we need to think much more deeply about the Scylla and the Charybdis through which we sail. One of those was a whirlpool, one of them was a colossal monster, and Odysseus had to sail his ship between the two, not getting too close to the one in case he got eaten, not getting too close to the other in case his ship got sucked down into a whirlpool. Evangelicals for 50 years have been theologically trying to do exactly the same. On the one hand, we've got the dangers of liberalism, and on the other hand, we've got the follies of fundamentalism. It strikes me that the current evangelical patriarchs, the likes of, for example, Jim Packer, Dick Lucas, I'm thinking especially to, to John Stott, were very good at fighting both. They would warn us of the dangers of liberalism for sure, but they were also equally firm about the follies of fundamentalism. And I'm not sure we're quite so good at that in these generations. And when we're not, here's what happens. It becomes much more tempting to beware of the dangers of liberalism and to end up sailing far too close to the follies of fundamentalism. <coughs> And I fear that we are seeing too much fundamentalist tone and even too much fundamentalist talk within our evangelical circles. 
which if we're not very careful, will become very destructive. So I think we need to think very deeply about both the Scylla and the Charybdis, those two dangers, and how we can warn ourselves and others equally about both, that we might steer the biblical line through the middle. As I say, that should have been an entire talk, but I've just neatly tucked it in there as number 11. Um, and then finally, uh, twelfthly, I take it you've all read the screw tape letters, or at least you know what the screw tape letters are. I've got a question for you. What would screw tape have made of social media? I think if I was C.S. Lewis and I was writing it today, I think I'd have an absolute field day. I'm just going to leave that thought there with you.